This is the Horse Radio Network. What a beautiful day for horses in the morning. World. I'm Emily Esterson from Coverside Magazine, the magazine of mounted fox hunting. And I'm Tara Tibbetts from Brazos Valley Hounds near Fort Worth, Texas. And you are listening to the monthly fox hunting episode of Horses in the Morning on the Horse Radio Network for Thursday, March 21st, 2019, episode 2144. This episode is brought to you by Coverside Magazine. Good morning, Horse World. So this is our wonderful monthly special episode about fox hunting. You can join us every month on the third Thursday to hear us chat about and talk to folks about fox hunting. And coming up on today's show, we're going to be talking about closing hunt traditions. No, not that kind of closing. The kind of closing that happens at the end of the season because it's party time. So we're also talking about parties. One of the other traditions that often happens at the end of the season, colors and buttons. So stay tuned for that. And coming up next, we've got adventures from the past 30-some days since we chatted with Emily and Tara last. What happened, ladies? Well, let's see. It's been a kind of crazy time for me in hunting because we had our 20th anniversary, which you'll hear more about later in the show. But uh, we had a great turnout for a big party, and it was super fun. We had um, a Friday afternoon trail ride, and then a cocktail party, and we had a great um, hunt Saturday and a great hunt Sunday, and we had a gala ball, and we had a hunt auction, and lots of great food, and people from um, all over the country came, and it was just an absolute blast, and Um, we, you know, these hunt parties are anniversary celebrations are a great way to sort of honor the people who supported your hunt. And some of those people come from as far away as Maryland. Like we have great friends at Goshen and, um, we have great friends in Tennessee and they came and, and, you know, it's just a, just a blast. It was just a great time. And we also had some great hunting, which is fun when you can have, um, guests enjoy your country and really get an, an opportunity to see what hunting's like there. Um, so that was really great. What about you, Tara? What's been up with you? Um, we just have kind of been keeping on, keeping on, um, no crazy parties. Our, you know, one thing we didn't actually talk to anyone about this year, we'll have to, we'll have to pick this subject up next formal hunt season is hunt balls. So I think that you did your hunt ball in coordination with your anniversary celebration, right? Yeah. And we only do it every, we don't do one every year. We only, you know, we only do a hunt ball every four, every five years, I think is our kind of tradition. Um, so, cause we just don't have enough members to do it. You know, it's a lot of work, but, um, but they're great, great fun. So yeah, cause we do a hunt ball every year and ours is actually this coming Saturday. And so we, um, ours isn't super formal. Like some of the ones I've seen just from Fox centers on Facebook and, some of the Instagram accounts I follow, um, you know, not everyone's necessarily wearing like a floor length gown, but we do most of our awards. Like we'll talk about with some guests today about giving awards at closing hunt. We do actually do most of our awards at our hunt ball. Mm. I think a lot of hunts do that too. You know, they give their awards at their hunt balls, kind of like the, the, uh, we call it like the closing prom, you know, the prom for, um, for hunting, you know, you, you get to dress up and everybody, somebody gets an award and, so, yeah, I think and inevitably when it's one of your first hunt balls, you don't recognize anyone because everybody looks so different without a hunt, uh, a helmet on and their hunt clothes. <laughs> Isn't that true? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Somebody posted a professional photo of me on Facebook the other day and, and people were like, I didn't recognize you without your helmet on. <laughs> so. It's always funny with horse riding friends. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> no. And, and my latest is, um, so I got Simon from my farrier and he, he gets a lot of off the track thoroughbreds from trainers around Texas who he has good a relationship with. And 
he's out of town. So he contacted actually a member of our hunt this weekend about picking up a mare that I don't know a lot of the circumstances behind it, but the long and short of it is it looks like I might be buying a horse this week who she's said to be very quiet. She looks to be a good size around 16 hands. The picture, she looks black with a big blaze and one white foot. So if it works out, if, you know, if she's sound and she's got a nice quiet brain, I'm kind of thinking I might keep her and try to hunt her a little bit next fall and then maybe sell her. I've never done anything like this before. So. Mm, interesting. Very nice. I interesting, love possibly crazy. Possibly crazy, but you know, that's what horses are. I mean, you never know what you're going to get. It's a gamble and you never know what you're going to end up keeping and what you're going to end up selling on. And, you know, or you could be like me and you never sell anything. So, you know, I've got like two guys in the back who are in their twenties. Um, and then, <laughs> you know, she's like hotel California. Yeah. Yes. You can check out, never but you can out. never leave. <laughs> and as a, as a kid growing up and I don't know, you know, my dad passed away really before I had the chance to ask him some of these questions that I anticipated I would ask him, but my parents sold my horse every year until I was in high school. And so I didn't really ever learn to get particularly attached to anything. And then now I have Jaguar who's 20, he'll be 26 in May. And you know, all the horses I have now, I can't imagine selling. I don't think, but so it, it's new, it's new territory, but you know, I, I've had a lot of people interested in Simon because he does have such a good brain and I really like bringing along young horses. And so we'll see. Yeah. Bringing along young horses for hunting to me is, uh, is a lot of fun. I, you know, I, I wish I had gotten started doing it when I was 20 years younger than I am. Cause now, now it's just not that much fun when you're older. Cause you're like, yeah, I don't really want to hit the ground anymore. You know, yes. I don't, I don't really bounce that well, but, um, but you know, I loved. I brought. I've brought along three, and I've loved loved those projects. Really loved them, and been pretty proud of of how they've come out. You know, ultimately, and like my horse now, Lucy. Originally thought she might be a project, but but uh, she's she's a forever horse because she's just become such a solid citizen. And um, last, not this past Saturday, but the Saturday before one of my students wanted to ride and we didn't have a, um, we didn't have a guest horse available. And I said, well, you know, you can ride Lucy, but just be forewarned that she's used to whipping in. So, you know, just keep her behind somebody in the field because if she sees the hounds, she's going to want to, you know, take action. And that might mean going into fifth gear. And, um, she's just so rideable and she was great for my student who's only been riding a year and a half. Like she was awesome. She just, she just stayed where she was supposed to stay and did her job. And I was so proud. So. And I think really there's a, a lot of reward for, you know, especially with the off the track horses or horses that maybe don't have glamorous breeding or bloodlines or whatever. It's really rewarding to me to give those horses a job and a value and make them useful citizens, which is, in my opinion, how you, you keep them in good, safe homes. And that is absolutely true. And that's one of the great things about fox hunting. It doesn't matter. You know, it's the saying as pretty as as pretty does absolutely applies yes. because it doesn't matter how your horse looks. It just matters that he's a good citizen. It doesn't matter yep. what his breeding is. If he can cover the ground or she can cover the ground and, you know, is agile and calm and, you know, it's, it's great. And I, I do think that's one of the great things about the sport of fox hunting is that it gives homes and jobs to horses who, who may not be show horses or may not be, you know, fancy sport horses, but are absolutely great rides. So that's, that's awesome. I love that. I love that analogy that the fox, a good fox hunter is the equine version of a canine good citizen. That that's such a great analogy because first and foremost, a fox hunt fox hunter has to have a really, really good brain. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. And and fox cool. hunting horses to me are a lot like, you know, as you all know, I grew up riding in eastern Montana on ranches, and I see a lot of similarities between a really good ranch horse that works cattle and a nice fox hunting horse. Mm -hmm. Same thing. Absolutely. Doesn't matter how fancy they are, doesn't matter any of that other stuff, if they get the job done and they have a good brain. Yep. We have a couple of stories on that one. Like the one of our, our master's wife whips in on a, a cutting horse who's 14 hands. And he is, 
he is the most awesome ride. Um, just, he can cover the ground like nobody's business. He's so agile. He's so fun to ride and he's bomb proof. And, um, I've got another, I've got some friends up in South Dakota who he's an old racetrack guy. He was a race racetrack trainer and a jockey and he takes horses off the track and he, he trains them on his ranch and then he resells them, you know, as either ranch horses or sport horses or fox hunters. And is that gate to great? Gates are great. Yeah. And he's, uh, Dale's a great, great guy, great trainer. And he, um, he makes some great horses just riding them on the ranch. That's, that's what he does. So we'll have to get him on sometime. I, I follow their Facebook page and I think it's really interesting to see how he brings those horses along. Cause my first fox yeah. hunting horse was my horse that I went to the world championships on raining. Yeah. Yeah. Dale so. would be, a, Dale will be a great guest. He's, he's lots of fun to talk to. So, so yeah, that's so exciting. So we're going to get started with this month's episode, and we're going to talk about a few newcomers tips. Help do I can. Yeah. So continuing our hunting newcomers diary, top 10 tips for a hunting newcomer. We are going to continue on with number seven and number eight. So first, number seven is to count hounds. So as he says, hunting got more interesting when I started to notice hounds. I was advised to try and count them away from a cover. Easy enough, surely. Not really. Firstly, I needed to understand when they were about to leave the cover, then I had to try and keep track of them, counting them in pairs or couples, as I was taught. It's not straightforward, and that's what makes it interesting. Count them at the meet, count them in the field, count them when everyone is smoking, drinking, and talking. I've started to be able to recognize individual hounds, and should you find yourself talking to the huntsman, C.4, showing the smallest interest in his first love is a good start. The field follow the field master who follows the huntsman, who follows hounds. And trying to understand hounds, the whole thing is starting to make a little more sense. And I would say, Emily, I completely agree. As do I. It's, uh, it's pretty amazing how when you first start hunting, a lot of people come out to hunt, to ride. And they gradually, at least I did, got more and more interested in in the hounds themselves and learning how to count a big, like moving, bumbling, uh, energetic group of hounds is that is a real challenge, especially when you're sitting on the back of a horse and they're moving all around you and you can't really tell how many there are. Um, and also the other thing that I really started to do was go on hound exercise and, um, I started by identifying the easiest hounds in the pack. Like we have one hound that's almost all white. And then we had another one at the time who was almost all black. He had a black saddle over his back. And so you start out with the easy ones and then you can ask like the whips or the huntsmen, um, how they identify, like what markings they use to identify so-and-so like one of our hounds has a little spot on the top of her head, you know, like a little round spot. Another one has a figure eight on her back, you know? And so you start to, to be able to see those differences and then it makes it a lot easier to count them. And I also found when I was riding in the field more so than now that whipping, you know, different from whipping in that I started to learn the different roles of the hounds, like the strike hound, who's usually one of the first hounds to get on scent. And I found it was easier for me to start to learn what the hounds looked like differently, kind of based on the job that they tend to do when they're out hunting. Yeah, that's true because their positioning in the field makes them, you know, easier, less easy to see. Right. So, you know, I, depending on where you hunt, I mean, I, I know in your country, in my country's, my country's really open in a lot of places. So you can actually see the pack working, even if you're in the field, even if you're deep in the field, because it's sort of wide open space and you can see them up ahead of you working and sort of take note of who's up front and who's over on the side and who's trailing behind and, you know, and you can sort of identify it that way too. So. Yes. Yeah. It's a great. So one. number eight. This is a little kind of taking a di little different path away from the hounds is go back to front. Charging around at the front seemed the most fun when I first watched people hunting, and it is. But until I have the balance and coordination to keep up safely, I need to be further back. It may be a little more boring at times, but I learn more listening and watching at the back than charging around at the front. 
I'm still scared witless at the back often enough. So really it's far from boring most days. And I would definitely say that's the absolute best way to learn to, about hunting and to not annoy other people when you're learning hunting. And it's also a great way to bring along a horse who might not be used to hunting. Um, if you're bringing along a young horse or if you're bringing a along a horse that's coming from another discipline that isn't used to it, so much easier to start them off slow and quiet and let them get used to the whole you know, hubbub that happens in, in hunting and, and you too, the person too, the rider, you know, and, um, I've started the three horses off now, um, youngsters and have done so with all three of them starting in third field and, or sometimes fourth field, which for us is just really walking. And it's just a great way. And plus the field masters, you know, they know so much. And if you get a good one, and in the third field, they're going to tell you what's going on. They're going to narrate the day, which is really going to help you, you know. Well, and when you're a little bit further back, you have the luxury of, you know, some hunts are very stick, much sticklers about being quiet in the field. And if you're a little bit further back, it's, you know, the, you're not as close to the huntsman making noise. So you can ask more questions and you're going slower. So it's easier to just kind of see things. But I definitely agree that is the only way to start green horses. In hunting. Yeah. Yeah. It's only, yeah, I've had, ha we've had a, you know, a few occasions uh, where I've talked to people and they say, oh yeah, I got this thoroughbred and, you know, he was just ready to go first field. And, you know, a few hunts later, they just, their brains are just a little fried. You know, it's, it's better to start off slow and keep them slow until you really feel like, okay, they're really ready. They can handle it. They stand at checks. They understand what's going on. They're quiet when the hounds run by, they don't kick. They, you know, they're just, they're chill. And then, then you can move them up to the next flight. And I think that's, that's a really good way to bring a horse along. You know, it's interesting with the voice, you know, with talking, that's, that's a, that's our huntsman is just an absolute stickler. And our field masters are absolute sticklers for quiet in the field, but the third field people are pretty far back. And even so they just keep their voices really quiet um, when they're talking and the third field master will just sort of kind of, talk in a very quiet voice about what's happening, you know? So and ours will, our, our third field master will often, she'll kind of open up like, here's a, this is a good time or good place if anyone has any questions. And I do recall when I was hunting with green Creek last fall, the, the field master for the field I was riding in, she, she did that as well where, and the huntsman did that cause it was informal hunting and we had an opportunity to stop and ask questions and, Hunts are always inviting to new people. So that's just, it's, you know, it's a gracious way, I think, to, to get acclimated. Yeah. And plus you can learn all about the etiquette for that particular hunt, by starting down in the back and, and moving up. And, and then when it, when you do move up to first field and you are kind of galloping along, you're just so much more comfortable if you start out slow, you know, it's, it just makes such a difference. It's like, I don't know. And uh, the members of your field are more comfortable with you there because they know you sort of like spent the time learning about hunting and learning your way around, you know, so it's good. It's a good way Excellent. to do it. And, you know, Excellent. the other, the other thing about being in the back in our hunt, it's almost always the third field that views the quarry. I mean, it's, it's like, you know, we'll come in first field and, and the staff will come in and be like, you know, it was, it was kind of a blank day or, we didn't really see anything or it didn't really, you know, it wasn't a great hunt. And they'll be like, well, we saw three coyotes, blah, blah, blah. You know, they're always the ones that view. So, <laughs> well, and that is traditionally the hilltopper group. And then, you know, I know in England when they, where they started obviously hunting, the hilltopper people were up at the top of the hill. So it, it makes sense. Ours is a little more wooded and a little more difficult for the, the fields behind the hunt huntsmen to see, but that's definitely true. I think of a lot of territory. This podcast is sponsored by the Masters of Foxhounds Association and Coverside Magazine, the magazine of mounted fox hunting in North America. In the next issue, which is the summer issue, Coverside will be focusing on the art of fox hunting and the literature of fox hunting. We'll be talking to artists from the Equine Artists Association, as well as looking at some women authors of fox hunting from the the late 19th century. So lots of cool stuff coming up. We'll also be having our normal Ask the Huntsman column, our Young Entry column, which talks about youth and fox hunting, and also our 
conservation column. So if you're interested in reading Coverside Magazine, you can go to mfha.com and go to subscribe. Well, hello, DJ. Thank you for joining us for our monthly fox hunting episode. And so we always like to start off with a little introduction. And first and foremost, I don't want to say your last name incorrectly, so I'm going to let you say it correctly. And then if you would tell us a little bit about how you started fox hunting. Okay. Um, my name is Donald Jeffress. Uh, people call me DJ. Uh, I grew up in Unionville, Pennsylvania, uh, fox hunting first with a, my uncle's pack, which was an unregistered pack, the West Bradford Foxhounds, at about the age of six. And then about the age of eight, I started also hunting with the Cheshire Foxhounds and hunted with both of them until I was in my 20s. Um, and then through my 30s and working, I would go uh, cub hunting or hound walking as it just didn't fit into the work schedule to hunt on Tuesdays and Thursdays then. Um, and uh, now I am at Green Creek Hounds in, uh, located in North Carolina. I actually live in South Carolina because we're right on the border from each other. So I'm curious to know, also, how did you end up in the Carolinas? Uh, I ended up in the Carolinas because I met a woman by the name of Catherine Mooneyham who was reading the Chronicle of the Horse, and I am still with Cat today, and she looked at a picture as we were on South Padre Island riding horses there, and I was managing the horse network down there, the, the riding horses on the beach, and she looked at a picture and said, I want to do that. And I said, okay, well, let's see if we can figure out how to do that. And about four years later, um, actually, no, I guess about six years later, we bought this farm here because we wanted to go fox hunting. And this is a good fox hunting area. And it wasn't as cold as my where I grew up in Cheshire and Unionville area. That's so delightful. I, I think I'd heard bits and pieces of that story. I had the pleasure of hunting with Green Creek last fall when my friend and I were in, at, visiting the World Equestrian Games. And that's where we met DJ and Kat. So I think that's a lovely story. <laughs> yeah, um, I blame all the, I blame all this on my my stepmother, who is the fieldmaster, flight three, and board member at Cheshire. She, I asked her to send me some magazines like the Equus, so I could help take care of horses down in South Padre Island, and instead she sent me the Chronicle. <laughs> that, <laughs> that's the, awesome. Yep. So our that would our have, theme that would have made a good addition to our uh, to our Valentine's Day episode. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and I did already tell DJ that we'd be probably asking them Cat and or DJ back next year for a couple of those. But our theme this this episode for March, as we've talked about already, is closing hunts. And I know that Green Creek just had um, what I think is kind of a unique uh, changing of the guard, so to speak. Of the the three previous masters have. I guess maybe it would say retired and then three, the three new masters took, took over, um, leadership, I guess on at closing hunt. Is that, am I saying it correctly, DJ? That is correct. Uh, uh we officially had our closing hunt on March 10th and, uh, because it was announced, uh, I guess over a month in advance that uh, our three masters were going to resign and had chosen three new masters to step in. Um, that was the best way to change over the power, you might say. Um, we did have two more hunts after the 10th, but uh, the official closing and the closing activities were on the 10th. So is the, the three previous masters, did they solely choose the new masters or was it like a club vote or kind of what's, I know different clubs do that in a different manner. So I just am curious how the, that was selected. Green Creek Hounds actually acts as a private hunt and our private hunt has masters. Um, by our bylaws of corporation, the masters can choose to add one. Um, they can have as few as three, I believe, and as many as I think like five, but <clears throat> in the past, there's always been three and they in turn sort of have to pass the throne down to somebody. And these three masters came on together a little over eight years ago. And they decided then that if they stayed with it long enough, that they would actually like to go out together. 
So that's what they did. The next step is you sort of have to look for, make sure you have three people that you like and think love fox hunting and love your hunt. And so they chose myself, uh, Anna Dalton and Ann Troutman. And uh, the three of us uh, are now the masters and essentially the pack is private. So essentially the, the hounds that you might say are ours, but uh, we have an obligation to our membership and to provide them with a quality hunt and quality things to do as a hunt. How long had the three previous masters tenure been in that role? Eight years, eight years. They were, they were masters. So what, uh, this is Emily here and, I know hunts are structured in all different ways and the requirements for becoming a master um, are vary from hunt to hunt and how people become masters and what they have to do to become masters is all, it's all different from one hunt to the next. And I know that that's one of the things that happens at closing hunts is the, the passing of the torch, whether it's uh, masters or sometimes it's staff, sometimes it's, you know, people getting their colors uh, so tell our listeners a little bit about how how you qualify for the job, as it were, of being a master. <laughs> I know in my hunt, people are like, no, no, not me. <laughs> like, say, they, they um, want to hide under the couch. <laughs> it's, as it was explained to us when each one of us were called to a meeting one at a time, the first thing that they said was, uh, we'd like to ask you to be a, the master. And the second thing was said is, this isn't a job that you asked to have. <laughs> so <laughs> they, you know, it, and they were serious about that. The, the, the three of us never once considered that. And I, and to be honest with you, I, uh, if you're familiar with Cheshire, uh, I grew up with that kind of atmosphere where, you know, still today, there's probably only a handful of members that have the hunt button. Um, and uh, the master is somebody who usually has been with the hunt for, years, like 20, um, you know, whereas, you know, our hunt is a younger hunt and they're, we're, we're moving and we're trying to stay moving, meaning trying to move forward. And we're trying to, to, you know, increase our membership. And it's also look for more areas to hunt and increase our reach in the community. And it gets a little tiring, I guess. So the three members, the three masters that we have, we're looking for an opportunity you know, they were, they're all in their sixties and felt it was time to find somebody that was at least younger to the club to provide some new out, some new opportunities out of the three masters. They have the three new ones. They have me who's grew up on the back of a horse in Fox Hunt since age six, Anna Dalton, who actually has been a member of all three Fox hunts in all four Fox hunts now in this area, um, for 30 years. Um, she was a founding member of, of Green Creek and Anna and, uh, Ann Troutman has been an active United States equestrian and eventing association member for her entire life and, uh, very active in the riding community of this area. So that's how we kind of all qualified for it. Love. <laughs> that was the first thing. So so what else do you guys do on your closing hunt? What, what kind of other traditions do you have? Um, I guess the main thing is Green Creek Hounds, as a tradition, we have breakfasts after every hunt. Um, and our breakfasts, are, our breakfasts are usually immediately following the hunt at one central location in the center of our hunt country. Uh, what we call the John Watson house, which is a privately owned house that isn't used or B we sometimes have them out in the field on that particular day in closing hunt. We had it at the John Watson house. And the reason being uh, it's a special breakfast as opposed to other ones is we sort of recognize the four important people that we would like to go over that day. The number one and foremost, of person is volunteer of the year. Uh, that person can be a social member. That person can be a riding member. Uh, it's it's sort of like the MVP of everything. And then we have uh, a we pick a staff member of the year, a social member of the year, and a riding member of the year. And uh, each of those three positions uh, essentially are just like the volunteer of the year, but they 
a sort of a smaller breakdown of it for a staff member who has been a whip and goes to the kennel the most and has really worked hard this past year. And without this person, you know, the, it would have, there would have been a big hole, you know, with the social member of the year, the person who may have helped put the ball on or, or helped put it, a lot of our social calendar together. And the same with the riding member, the person who's out there cleaning the pass and has shown up at all the hunts, etc. So it's a, it's a kind of a, you take time to thank the, people in the best way you can that have helped make your hunt survive. So do the masters select who gets the awards or is it a membership vote? Now with our hunt, everything with our hunt, I guess it's a, I, I will explain with our hunt. Everything is the masters. Um, the best way to explain it is um, the best way that I explain it is it's a benevolent dictatorship. Um, the three of us, are in charge we are fully responsible um the best form of government your average history professor will tell you is a benevolent dictatorship king arthur he loved his people every decision he made was for his people that's our job you know and and that's uh, that we also decide who become who gets these awards each year and we decide what's best for our hunt and hopefully we're right <laughs> yeah they say Democracy is messy. We <laughs> when I can say as you know, an I'm HR not, professional, that's definitely true. Yeah, I'm not saying that the other forms of fox hunts and clubs, you know, it's not just fox hunts. There are lots of different clubs that are formed in different ways with memberships and everybody gets votes, etc. Um, but in the same respect, if you have one good person, or in this case, three good people that think and try and do what's best for the hounds and the members, and the horses. Um, hopefully at the end of the day, everybody's happy. All three of those entities are happy. So do you, do you, the three of you kind of decide different roles for each person or is everything a joint decision or is that something you're, I mean, it's all very new. So you're p possibly still working that out. <laughs> oh, we aren't really working it out. We worked it out. It's sort of, you know, the first thing, welcome to today's society. Well, we have an ongoing text conversation that takes place um, pretty much seven or eight times a day and has for the past, uh, since we found out the first week of January. Um, and for instance, I seem to have, I've spent all day out in the field preparing for our hunter pace. Um, that has sort of something that falls towards me. And uh, Troutman is, is really the nuts and bolts and looking at the the bills and looking at the budget and looking at different things and how we can do things. <clears throat> Anna is our communications, sending out the emails, working on the Facebook page, as well as with the, as I like to say, she's the passion of our group because she's been hunting right here in this area for 30 years. So she's the one that's going to help direct us in the future as to, okay, where can we find more space to hunt? So I'm curious about uh, whether you, do you award colors and buttons to, to members? Oh, uh, yes. Yeah. Yes, so actually we do. Yeah. Just so talk about that. how that process works. Cause I think that's something that a lot of people who are members of Fox hunts are sort of like, what's, there's a little bit of a mystery around that. Like, how do I get my colors? So, and every hunt's um, different, of course, but. Every hunt is different. Um, again, you know, I, I was raised with one hunt where I only knew three or four people total that ever got their colors. Um, whereas a lot of hunts today hand out more colors or officially the hunt button with the colors. And for instance, for us, it's a, it's, it's kind of a, a proven love. It's not necessarily a, a time. They must be with us for five years. They must be with us for three years. Um, and it's, it's not necessarily, they have to, you know, show up at every hunt, et cetera. It, it's more of a feeling of how much they love our hunt and being a part of it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, this year, you know, the previous masters, that was the last thing they did. They awarded four colors, I believe, to four deserving people who are active out in the field riding, um, you know, and as well as, uh, oh, at, at almost all of our social functions and all of our fundraising functions and pick up a saw and show up at our, at our trail cleaning functions. So, um, so that's, that's, you know, when I was awarded my colors, I remember I was like, 
really touched by it. Like I, I kind of couldn't believe it happened. And, you know, it was just, it was sort of a touching moment, you know, and I think that's, that's kind of what those closing hunts are all about. Like, um, you know, sort of recognizing people and, and recognizing the communities. Is that kind of how it is at Green Creek? Yes, absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, everybody who's awarded their colors, you know, uh, you know, automatically is either huge smiles or tears, one or the other. Um, you know, you know, they're and usually shocked um, that they were awarded colors. Um, you know, because uh, it, again, it's one of those things that you don't go out and go, I need this. I need this. I want that. It's, it's actually just a collar, you know, and it's a button and let's go fox hunting. And that's what, if we, if we love fox hunting, you go out at the end of the day, the hunt recognizes you and remembers you and wants you to remember them and carry their colors and button. Yeah. I burst into tears when I got my colors. I couldn't even believe it. Oh, it was, it was great. Yeah, I, as I said, different hunts, you know, uh, you know, as, as I grew up in fox hunting in southeastern Pennsylvania, where, you know, there are some hunts there that, you know, literally they don't get their colors for 20, 30 years, you know, so <laughs> it's not even, it's not even something that people don't even think about getting colors. And if they do actually get awarded a color, they, you know, they really do break down in tears and fall on the floor and are completely shocked. Um, that they were awarded the hunt button, you know, uh, and that's a, that's a rarity in, in some hunts. Yeah. So don't you think it has, it, it makes people engage more like, you know, once you've got your colors, you're sort of, you're in, you know, there's no, there's no question that you're going to be showing up every week or as much as you can, you know? Yes you- and no. Uh, today's society, things, people move so fast and things change so fast. I mean, we have, you know, lots of people who have received their colors and then a year or two later, they, you know, by job or whatever had to move, you know, and went out of the, and moved out of the area. Um, you know, uh, that's, it's not always the case. I don't think in this day and age that you'll get the colors and we'll see that person for the rest of their life. Yeah. I, guess well, I know true. I've seen in my hunt a couple of times where I feel like folks really were working towards and trying to put forth at the effort, so to speak, to get their colors, and then they got their colors and buttons, and you know, a season or two later, they kind of—it's uh, something like the drive wasn't there, and uh, you know, life again, life situations change, like DJ was saying. Um, and I maybe missed this, but do you award the colors at closing hunt, or do you do that at a different event? No, at at the closing hunt, at okay. the at the end of that year, it's when we award the 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 colors and. Uh, and as I said, it's not a discussion that I've been a part of yet because, you know, that, you know, call me this time next year and I'll tell you who got colors in our, in our hunt and why, um, you know, uh, it, you know, it, it is unique in that you see some hunts, especially, you know, you know, from what I consider the South and through the Midwest, you'll see a picture of the field and you'll see 45 people with uh, a, a colored collar on from their hunt. You know, um, everybody who's a member, as long as they're still a member of the club and working towards the club after three to five years, they'll get colors. And that's, that's one way to do it. Another way to do it is to say, well, it's, it's a much higher level. You, you have to perform for a longer time to achieve the colors. It all depends how special you want to make it. I I agree. I, I think, you know, it's, it's a wonderful honor. And I know I was really touched when I received my colors. Um, my colors actually, I got on St. Patrick's day in 2012. So what was that? Four or five years ago, six years ago. Um, mm-hmm. but DJ, we really appreciate you coming on and talking to us today about green Creek's traditions and, and your new honor as a, a master. So if our listeners want to find out more about you or get in touch with you, what would be the best way for them to do that? Email DJ rugby at yahoo.com as well as Facebook DJ Jeffress, J E F F E R I S. And I'm the DJ that actually is, has a profile picture of a guy on a horse as opposed to a guy behind a turntable. Well, and don't forget your website. Oh, my webs. I actually, we actually do have our own website, horse, horsecountry.com. 
They have a delightful Airbnb that I'm confident Caitlin and I are going to be crashing in October. Well, that Airbnb is all fox hunting. The, the entire inside is all plates. Uh, one of the things that I do is I collect spode herring hunt plates and, and the, that China pattern. I have, according to Spode in England, I have the largest collection in the world. So there's a bunch hanging in there as well as prints, etc. So you'll feel very comfortable in there. So if any listeners are wanting to try out fox hunting and they're in the North Carolina, South Carolina area... Definitely check out DJ's website and you can at least road whip. Oh, um, we're actually, we're uh, this new masters. We're trying to look at, we have trail riding all summer long. And one of the things that we are going to be encouraging, one of the things that we have learned is there in this day and age, there are a lot of people that learn to ride and ride in their ring and they feel very uncomfortable going out of the ring or they feel even uncomfortable going across their own pasture and we're going to try and help encourage and even often offer clinics to people to step out and we will go as slow as necessary. Um, Cause all Fox hunt is, is a trail ride. We can do it at different speeds. Wonderful. So would that be information beyond green Creek's website or Facebook page? It will be coming up in about 30 days. Excellent. Well, thank you so much and have a wonderful day. That computer seems to be telling us just what we want to hear. So our term of the month is walk, W-A-L-K, just like you do uh, walking around. And the reason it's a term for fox hunting is that it actually refers to uh, when hunt members take hound puppies home and give them their basic manners. And they come to live at at members' homes and they get to be socialized. And um, so you can, you know, teach them to walk on a leash teach them their name, teach them to sit, come, stay. And again, different huntsmen have different requirements for walking puppies and what they want the puppies to come back knowing. And it usually, um, usually walk a puppy for, you know, it depends on the hunt, but usually until the hunt member is like, this puppy is ruining my garden. And then they go back to the kennels um, or, you know, six months to eight months, and then they can go back to the kennels. And it's a great way for hunt members to really get deeply involved in fox hunting. They get to know a couple of the hounds that will be growing up and part of the pack. Um, they get to know that litter pretty well. And then the a lot of hunts will rehome those hounds when they retire back to the people that walked them. So that's why our spring word is going to be walk because this is the time that the puppies are being born and and in eight weeks or so, they get distributed to some hunt members' homes so they can be walked. Have you ever walked puppies? Um, yes, I have walked four puppies. Um, tell, me, and, tell me, 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 tell De- me. Duke and Dexter. And Duke is the one you occasionally hear in the background of this um, podcast because he's now retired at my house. And then Flip Flop and Epic. And they were so much fun. Um, and I really enjoyed it because it sort of gave me the opportunity to have a puppy, to have puppies without having puppies, right? So they mostly lived in the barn. They didn't come in the house. We had a kennels for them in the barn. And um, and I did all kinds of things with them, like rode around on my mountain bike with a little um, fake foxtail dipped in coyote urine um, and hung it on the back of a string on the back of my mountain bike and Hauled, hauled my butt around the pasture and had the puppies chasing me. It was totally fun. I would, I love doing it. Was that something you came up with on your own or was that an idea the huntsman gave you? Well, the huntsman gave me a little bottle of coyote urine um, scent. Uh, and he said, and he gave me the, the little, he said, you can put it on a rag or you can put it on a fake tail or something. Um, he didn't come up with a mountain bike idea. I did because I was trying to figure out a way to get them to chase me. And, you know, you can only run so far with two puppies running behind you. Um, and so I came up with a mountain bike idea. We happened to live um, on our property backs onto a huge field, a 500-acre alfalfa farm. And there's a hard pack road that I mountain bike around. And so um, I just would take them out there and, and run around with them. So that was super fun. Yeah, our my hunt doesn't do that. We But we have a litter of puppies that was born recently. And so... A few of us are are trying to convince our huntsmen that maybe that would be a good idea. And it maybe is mostly because we just want puppies or a house for a while. 
Yeah, some hunts do it, some hunts don't. You know, it just depends. And ours does because we're all volunteer. We don't have any professionals. We don't have a professional kennelman. And um, and so, you know, we're just sort of dependent. It also keeps members really involved in the hounds and, and lets them get to know the hounds and and like get engaged with the with the pack more. And it's it's just a good all around fun thing. So. Well, it takes a lot of pressure off the huntsman to teach the puppies their name and a couple of commands and just kind of general manners. Because from what I've seen, hound puppies grow really fast and they get pretty big and they're kind of unruly. And so if you have 10 of them, it would be a lot easier to separate them out. Right. And unless you're really equipped for that, like some kennels, because some kennels are really equipped for having puppies, you know, they have a whole like kindergarten area where all the puppies go, you know, but a lot of kennels aren't and ours is not. And I can tell you that hound puppies have a particular um, love for horse fly masks and uh, gloves. (laughs) (laughs) I cannot tell you how many fly masks I lost for those two years that I had two puppies each. That was like, oh, where is that? You could not, I couldn't even keep them on the horses. Like they'd pull them off the horses. It was crazy. So. But I love the full circle that you have a retiree now. Yeah, he's awesome. He's great. And he, and you know, the retirees, I don't know if it's because he came back to the place where he was raised or, and I think this is generally the case. He, I never had to, he never lived in my house, but he never had to be housebroken. He just immediately knew, I think he maybe had one accident in the house. And then he's super, super biddable and easy to work with. And like, if he does something bad, I just like yell at him, no. And he's like, oh, I'm so sorry. Like, he's just so easy. And, um, he instantly took over the couch and he's like, yeah, I'm never going back to the kennel. This is my place now. And, um, that was that, you know, (laughs) and it's pretty great because I can take him out in that big field on horseback and I have my hound whip and he will be, he's very obedient to the hound whip. So I can ride him, um, ride with him off leash. And if he starts to stray in any way, I just, you know, kind of wave my whip at him. Like I would, if he was in the pack and he gets right behind me and stays right behind me. So it's kind of, it's kind of fun to have him there. So we are with Nancy Ambrosiano, and she is the president of Casa La Drone in Santa Fe, New Mexico. And Nancy and Tara and I are going to chat about opening hunt traditions, or closing hunt traditions, actually, because this is March and it's time for closing hunts. And I think I have heard tell that Casa La Drone has a pretty crazy closing hunt. So Nancy... Tell us about what happens at Casa Ladrone on Closing Hunt. Well, it's almost a little embarrassing, but we actually have a costume party as our Closing Hunt breakfast. Um, This did not start out as designed to be a costume party. It originally started as just a bit of a theme to organize the decorations for breakfast at Closing Hunt. That first theme was uh, we were going to have a tiki bar. And then when a few of the whippers in ended up hunting that day with flower lays around their necks, it sort of rolled on from there. Um, this year, our theme was going to be the a ridiculous movie called Cowboys and Aliens that happened to be filmed not far from here. So we're going to have cowboys and aliens and regular fox hunters, depending on who decides to actually dress up. So people go full tilt on the costumes for this. It's pretty ridiculous. So uh, what are some of the themes that we've had in the past few years that you can recall? Um, Well, following on the Tiki Bar, which actually the Tiki Bar was was a wonderful idea because we actually had a had a, a pond uh, out there when we stuck flamingos in it. Out in the middle of the desert, around the midst of nothing, we had the pond, the flamingos, the tiki bar, one or two grass skirts. From there, being our usual party fool selves, we um, escalated it. And the next year, the theme was Pirates of the Pinon, Pinon being the state tree of New Mexico. And I think that was my absolute favorite because fox hunters turn into pirates at the drop of a hat. It's fabulous. 
Uh, I seem to remember one Emily Esterson hunting with a uh, otherwise perfectly formal outfit and uh, a sash, her pirate sash, peeking out from under her Melton. But um, I got uh, rid of the so sword <laughs> in the in the interest of safety. Yeah. <laughs> Thank goodness. Yeah. But uh, yeah, pi- so Pirates of the Pinion, my total favorite scene so far. And then another year, we decided to go with Disco Fever, which uh, was it. I'd say the the costumes were fairly hilarious. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> I'll try that again. The costumes were hilarious, but the soundtrack was the best. We had wonderful tunes for that one. Um, then the year after How that, how does the soundtrack at- play into it? Oh, so we just have something playing in the background. So uh, it, it, we moved into the clubhouse for the breakfast. Okay, so this is not while music. you're hunting. No, we're trying to actually hunt formally, although there are bits and pieces of little pieces of costumes occasionally peeking out. But um, but for the most part, this the ridiculousness is aimed purely at the breakfast. Um, so then, uh, the, so the next year we went for superheroes and villains. Um, so of course we had several wonder woman characters and, um, another member was, Oh, she was a fabulous bad girl of Harley Quinn. Uh, and one of our master's wives, who's also a whip, she came as Catwoman and was the best Catwoman ever. And, uh, and another friend, Deborah was Cruella DeVille. So, Superheroes and villains was was quite entertaining. Then last year, we really dropped the ball. It it was it was the year of the lame. I don't know. Come as you wish in your favorite costume. And I think I might have been one of the only people who bothered with a costume. And I showed up in a giant corgi onesie because that's my <laughs> role in our hunt is to be the corgi nipping at everyone's heels. Um, so. Yeah, and then this year we've moved it up to this wonderful movie theme where I'm betting what we're going to mostly see is cowboy hats, vests, and saps because that's easy. <laughs> yeah. So it sounds like the costumes are kind of hidden while you're actually hunting and then they make a debut at the breakfast. That's our goal. We we are trying to actually finish the season as as a sensible, serious, formal attire group. Um and and the rest of the season we don't do silly silly things, other than you know occasionally falling off our horses. But but we are trying to be attired in a reasonable way. Um, it's only at the only at the breakfast and the unveiling of people once they've gotten their horses back to the trailers and set up and water buckets and hay nets and all of a sudden everybody disappears for a little bit into their dressing room of their trailer and then they leap out as whoever <laughs> and then you, you come around the corner and go holy cow it's you know it's a doctor what's his name oh geez my own husband and i can't remember what he was it was the superhero who bends time and doctor who doctor who no no it wasn't doctor who it was um the one that was uh benedict cumberbatch oh um Doctor oh, Strange. Strange. That was it. Doctor Strange. So, yeah. yeah, you come around the corner and suddenly there's Doctor Strange in front of you. So, yeah. makes it fun. But at least we didn't spook the horses. Yeah. Yeah, the red sash, the pirate sash, that was a little, that was a little dodgy. You know, my sash flowing behind me while we were galloping around out there in the desert. Um, I, I thought it was fairly tasteful. It was right on the limit. Yeah. <laughs> so... So, Nancy, what else does Casa Ladrone do in addition to the costumes? Because I know there are some fun sort of year-end awards that, that happen. Oh, yeah. That's been a fun one. I had, we, were, we, were, we always look for good ideas for how can we honor people who've done good things. And, you know, outside the realm of necessarily um, colors and buttons, but, but what other good things can we, you know, give them credit for? And um, this year, the best selection of ideas actually came from Fox Hunters on Facebook. The, um, the Fox Hunters on Facebook group is, was very kind. I had posted a question about that. 
and people had, um, oh, there was one, let's see, they gave a rubber ducky award for someone who'd fallen off crossing water. And, um, of course, the standard, you know, best staff horse, best new member, I don't know, a lot of um, sort of traditional things. But but I, I love the idea of being able to do a rubber ducky award or um, there was one that we just came up with. I believe that was an Emily suggestion um, of the a Big Bang Award for the staff member whose air vest has deployed the largest number of times during the season. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of ridiculous, but, yeah. you know, got to give credit where credit's due. Yeah. And we also well, have... Well, go ahead, Tara. I And I know, I think that's a tradition with multiple hunts. I know my hunt does it. Do you do a cropper, cropper's club? A what? <laughs> uh, maybe it's not u- ubiquitous. A cropper's club? Oh, oh that's... We, or like a Dusty, bo- Dusty Bottoms Award? Yeah, and my hunt, the first person who gets bucked off is the president of the cropper's club. Everyone else who comes off during the season is a member of the Cropper's Club, and they're tasked with throwing a party during the summer that they have to host. Oh, that's lovely. Uh, we should do that. Because um, we <laughs> tend to have not that many. We don't have a lot of jumps in our territory, so we don't have that many people coming off in the course of the year. But um, So it could be a small, elite group. But uh, but no, sort of a, a Dusty Bottoms Award, or in this case, the, the folks coming off in the water. Our guy whose horse rolled in a pond gets to be gets the rubber ducky. Yes, yeah, so I think our territory is fairly similar to yours. So people are not coming off at my hunt over jumps. They're usually coming off from naughty horses. <laughs> um, I'd love to well, say we don't have any naughty horses in our hunt, but I would be lying. <laughs> I, they're everywhere. Um <laughs> Do you guys do a breakfast in the field for your closing hunt or do you have a clubhouse and like a catered meal or what, what, what's the, what's the meal like? So our meal, we take great pride in wonderful food. For some reason we have a club full of foodies. They're just remarkable, but we will be this time in the clubhouse. Normally our closing hunt um, is in the, it's not our own hunts clubhouse. It's actually the show office of the facility at which we keep the hounds. That's Hippico Santa Fe, which is a wonderful, huge show facility. And they're kind enough to let us use the clubhouse on during inclement weather. And, uh, and in this case for a special event and, uh, Oh, and the food, no, the food is not catered. Once again, uh, we, we will stick with honoring our members cooking abilities and we will be giving awards. I forgot to mention, not only do we have things like the falling off awards, but um, we'll be giving cooking awards. So something with regard to dessert or a best main dish, or we've done the food competition, both based on the whole season. Was there a memorable particular food? Or we've also done it uh, where it's just something at the breakfast that day that is the the best thing at the breakfast and then people can kind of rev up for it. Um, but, uh, yeah, so we'll do food in the clubhouse and, and as always we eat till we're foundered. Does the food, do the food awards get a little competitive? Well, if it's done right there for the, the food of the closing meat, that breakfast, yes, is very competitive. If we view it as the whole season, then I don't know. It's I'd say our our foodies are kind of competitive all year long. I mean, there's there's always a, a posting of okay, you know, Phyllis is going to do her tiramisu, and then if we can get Amy to bring the amazing chocolate Guinness cake, and if Emily will bake anything, it'll be amazing. Last week, Emily baked a fruit tart that was to die for. Thank you. Excellent. <laughs> Very nice. Now you're going to have like. People from all over the country inviting themselves to Causal Drones hunts next year after this podcast, just for the food. Oh, we we'd be we'd be down with that. <laughs> we just had our twentieth anniversary and had people from uh, a variety of different states come and enjoy that with us. So yeah, we we enjoy hosting. We had uh, I think we had people from uh, Goshen. We had people from Arapaho. We had people from Bijou Springs. 
We had people from Cloudline. Uh, Cloudline. Um, oh, and the Tennessee gang. Don't and forget. Yeah, Cedar Knob Hounds came all the way from Tennessee. And it was with it was their a, horses. With their horses. Yep. Hauled across the country. Two days of driving. So um it's it's super fun. And the food thing is it is get gets competitive. And I spend a lot of my Friday um sort of cogitating about or actually my Thursday kind of cogitating about about, you know, what I'm going to cook and how I'm going to cook it and who's cooking what and thinking about it. So, yeah. How are the food awards voted on? Um, kind of informally, several of us gather back in, in a separate room and say, well, what do you think? (laughs) So it tends to be the masters and a couple of other food oriented people. (laughs) It's fairly informal. But, um, I was kind of hoping there might be stories of sabotage and bribery. Oh, that's um, always possible, but I would not (laughs) say that I've seen that yet. uh, No, and it's funny because we decided not to do catered food anymore years ago when we started having all our breakfast be potluck. And now, granted, we have had the occasional breakfast where we ended up with six different shrimp dishes or all desserts. Because we don't assign anything. We don't do the, you know, if your last name starts with this, you have to bring a main dish. It's just completely, let's see what happens. And it tends to work out. And on the days that it doesn't work out, eh, who's not going to love a little extra dessert? My hunt does that as well. And we, we tend to have the same people tend to kind of do desserts and some people kind of do main dishes. So I think it works out. Yeah, I yeah. think, yeah, I mean, as long as you're not only doing a potluck once a year, if you're doing it regularly, everybody does settle into a rhythm and, um, and it works out well. And we've decided we like our own cooking a lot better than most of what would be brought in as a catered meal. Oh, and the other aspect is that for a catered meal, you'd have to have a head count. And if I could get our hunt members to RSVP, my head would fly off. I can't, I can't imagine how I could ever get valid numbers on how many we would be feeding. So it's much easier to have potluck. Yeah, it is. It is hard to get those people to respond and say, yes, I'm coming. So that would be a tough, that would be a tough thing to do. So Nancy, tell us a little bit about your background in hunting. Um, Cause I know Casal Drone is not the first hunt that you've belonged to. And love to no, hear about that. It's not my first rodeo. Not mm-hmm. my first rodeo. Um, so no, I grew up uh, hunting in Virginia, in the Virginia Beach area, back when Princess Anne Hunt was based out of a clubhouse in Virginia Beach, and um, hunted for years with them. Got my colors with them, and whipped in as a junior, and then went off to college. Um, and let's see, then. Uh, hunted in various, you know, it was a guest with a bunch of different hunts. I, I got to hunt with uh, Keswick and Farmington and Deep Run and, hmm. Oh, and then when we moved to California, I went out a few times there with Los Altos and, um, and then moved here and I was an eventer. So I wasn't doing any hunting until my event horse went lame and uh, one of the hunt members here said, well, I've got a horse if you want to come out hunting with us. And I thought, that's right. I haven't been doing this. I have not been hunting in years. And uh, as soon as I got back to it, I was hooked again. So that's been 12, maybe 15 years of hunting here with Cazola Drone. So they've been incredibly wel- welcoming you know fox hunters are the best people so you can't ask for a better group to hang around with that is true and i have to ask because you are a first field master who hunts a draft cross and so we have to ask about la Luz. so tell us about la Luz. oh, <laughs> oh. Laluz is hilarious. I, I'm going to have to change my name to Khaleesi Rider of the She-Dragon because Lucy is, um, she's half Clydesdale, half thoroughbred, and she came out of Canada, so I am betting that she is a PM, 
I'm going to say a PMS baby. No. <laughs> <laughs> PMU. PMU. <laughs> I think, yes. <laughs> They're kind of all PMS babies, the mares anyways. Yeah, yeah that's true. They are. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so, so La Luz um, came to me and she, she was a failed pony club horse. Um, she had been um, owned by one of our local pony club members. And Luz is like 17 hands. She's a beefy girl. And this was a very tall child. So she clearly needed something with some significant heart girth. And Luz has that to spare. But, um, but Luz is also a terrible smarty pants. And she very quickly got this rider's number and became a very disobedient horse. I had lost my previous hunt horse, Thomas, best hunt horse ever. I had lost him to colic. So when I was horse shopping, I said, well, I know this mare has hunted and she seemed to be okay in the hunt field. She's got some things that need work, but eh, we can work with that. So I went ahead and grabbed her and, and had about a month to say, do you think you could lead a field here, big horse? And she actually loves her job, loves it, loves it, loves it. She is basically her, her goal in life is to be a hound. <laughs> so she's a lot of fun to hunt and she just stays right there with her hounds. She is a, she's a presence in the field. Uh, I'll give you that. She's uh, she's got a lot of presence. Um, so Nancy, we got to wrap up here and uh, really thank you for your time. It sounds like, you know, we have a great time at Casa Drone, and you're a big part of that. So we appreciate you sharing your, our closing hunt traditions with us on Horses in the Morning. And uh, we'll talk soon. Okay. Thank you so much. You can find Coverside online at ecoveredside.net or the digital edition at issuu.com backslash ecoveredside. Tara can be found at BigSkyBootCity.com. Find the links to today's guests and the show notes at HorsesInTheMorning.com. And you can follow Horses in the Morning on Facebook. Just search for us, Horses in the Morning. You can have all of the Horse Radio Network shows with you wherever you go with our free app for iPhone and Android. Just go to your app store and search Horse Radio Network. And if you miss the live show, you can still listen to a recorded version on our website our affiliate websites, or any podcast player. You never need to miss an episode. And many thanks to our sponsors, the MFHA, who you can find at mfha.com. Good night. Good night.